Antoine, welcome to FO Podcasts. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for your time. Um, those of you who are tuning into this episode of FO Podcasts should know that my guest is Antoine von Achtmeil. Have I got your pronunciation correct? Absolutely, yes. Brilliant. Now, Antoine um, is an investor, he's a philanthropist, he's an author, uh, he's a Renaissance man. He's a Dutchman um, who is also an American. I believe you have dual citizenship. I do. Brilliant. So um, a truly a cosmopolitan individual, a transatlanticist in many ways, and a man who coined the term emerging economies. Emerging markets. Emerging yes. markets. Okay. Emerging markets. I stand corrected. So without further ado, um, Antoine, how do you see the global economy shaping up over the next year or two and maybe over the next decade or two? Okay. Well, let's start with the next two years. I think we will see a, a period of stagflation. That is to say, inflation that in some countries is now 10, other countries 7, 8%. Yeah. Eurozone is 10.7, I read, like, yeah. the last <clears throat> I read. That will slow down to probably some 5%. Mm -hmm. But it will be combined with a much slower economy than we have seen these last years. So that combination is often called stagflation. We are going back to the 1970s. I remember reading. I mean, of course, I don't remember that time, but I remember I reading from my economics uh, uh, textbooks and books and, of course, various papers back at Oxford yeah. about the 1970s and stagflation was really hurtful. Yes. This stagflation, I think, will be different. Different in the sense that we are not going to see inflation of 17, 18% for be a period of time. Before you say it'll be different, paint a picture, especially for those who are younger, as to what the 1970s was like. But it was a brief period of several, well, a period of several years that in the United States and other countries, you saw inflation suddenly rise to 15 plus percent. Was it thanks to the 1973 OPEC? I think that had a lot to do Oil with hike. it. Yes, yes, that had a lot to do with it. You could even say it was one of the major causes. Yeah. And so very dramatic action was needed. And that action was led by an American central banker, Paul, Paul Volcker, Volcker yeah. who... Uh, Whom I met, who was a remarkably impressive human being. He is, he is. He was. Yeah, he yeah, died. He was. Uh, yeah. And he recognized that in order to get rid of this economic cancer, he needed basically economic chemotherapy. And the economic chemotherapy was very high interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I say it's not going to be like that because I think neither the inflation nor the interest rates will be that high or that bad, but it will still be stagflation. In other words, little, no, or even negative growth combined with something like 5% inflation, not just for a few months, as the central bank here, Fed, originally thought, but for a couple of years, because once inflationary expectations have become anchored into the mind I found this on the web. of people, 
then you get this type of phenomenon. Brilliant. Now, those of you who heard, I found this on the web, was uh, the telephone going rogue, uh, just as um, uh, Sarah Palin once went rogue. <laughs> anyway, I remember vividly this from my reading, and I have asked this question when I was teaching political economy in Berkeley. I was teaching global political economy, and I asked this question, who killed Keynes? Was it Milton Friedman? Was it uh, uh, Ronald Reagan? Was it Margaret Thatcher? Was it stagflation? Was it guns and butter of the 60s that led to massive deficits? Uh, but the point I was getting to was the 1970s were also stagflationary because in the period coming up to the 1970s, central banks had been a bit loose with their monetary policy and governments had been a bit lax about yeah. their fiscal policy. And we are in a similar situation yeah. today. First of all, I think that Keynes didn't get killed, but wounded. Wonderful. And uh, that academically, the person who did it undoubtedly was Milton Friedman. Not Friedrich von Hayek. You know, there's never, <laughs> just as Keynes can claim credit for all of his ideas, I think Milton Friedman can't claim credit for all of its ideas, or for that many Eddie oh, even or, 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 or even Friedrich von Hayek, because right. of course he right. was greatly exactly. influenced by the Austrian school and yeah, von exactly. Mises. Pardon. So I think that that changed, but don't forget that a Republican president, Nixon, around that time said, we're all Keynesians now. Yes, he so did. And in 1973, he took um, the dollar off the gold standard. Right. I, I know that very well. And did price controls. Yes, and did price controls. So um, I think his influence is still there. But I think economics has moved on. But, but on a serious note and a less academic note, over the last few years, central banks have followed quantitative easing. I have met people in various central banks with grave reservations about it. They do yeah. not say so in public, but they are worried. Yes. I have met people... For good reason. Yeah, and I have met people in governments, and I'm sure so have you. Some of my friends are in government. Some of them are in politics, who have grave reservations about spending more than their governments earn. And they say politically it is suicide if you cut too deeply. But they are very, very, very hesitant about making the tough choices. Right. And most people are worried now that inflation has come in, that would we see the unraveling of these last few years of excessive spending and excessive printing of money? Yeah, of course, it all started, I'm afraid to say, under Trump mm -hmm. and his bill to basically cut taxes, but, which created an imbalance. That's fiscal already. policy. That's fiscal policy, yeah. but that all has an impact. Of course it does. And uh, then, of course, it was followed by the pandemic when, let's face it, the government needed to do triage. Mm -hmm. And when you do triage, uh, you know that not everything you do is going to be right. I think that when history is written 10 years from now, People will say that Biden should be very grateful, even in these elections, for Joe Manchin, who stopped him from basically 
giving in more than was necessary to what you could call the left wing of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result of which a lot of money was spent. Mm -hmm. I personally think a little bit too much money was spent, mm -hmm. uh, but at least not even more money was spent because that would have made it worse. Understood. So the next two years, we are going to see stagflation. Yes. What happens afterwards? What is your prediction? After that, we will again see, unless we get some global conflict, mm -hmm. we'll see the stock market booming back. Mm. We'll see the economy moving back up again mm. and inflation coming down to an acceptable zero to two percent range, I think. All right. So, so I'm not pessimistic in the long run. In the long run. Neither do I believe that we're moving toward any kind of depression or major economic crisis. Mm -hmm. But we are moving into, in fact, have already moved into a difficult phase, but not as difficult as the 70s. And certainly not as difficult as the 1930s. No. All right. Now, you, after two years, you see growth. Now, that brings me on to my next question. Where will this growth come from? Where are the bright, shiny spots in the world which will drive these growth. And you've written a book. Uh, I reviewed the book. Uh, I found it a fantastic book. Uh, I didn't agree with all of it, but <laughs> but uh, I, I learned a lot. Uh, the smartest places on earth. Exactly. The smartest places on earth. Uh, brain belts, not rust belts. So uh, since you've already done the work, where are those places which are going to drive growth? If we're talking about the United States, and growth is not going to be driven just by the United States. But it will be a key driver in it your view. It will be one of the key drivers. Yes. I see. Um, if we're talking about the United States, we're talking basically about what always drives growth, which is mm. technological change. Yep. And that technological change will come not just from the triangle of Boston, Silicon Valley and Texas, mm. it will come from inside that triangle as well. Mm. Much more so than people believe. Mm -hmm. So you mean places that you've written about like Akron, Ohio, the polymer capital yeah. of the world, Batesville, Mississippi, Albany. Yes, you, you name it. There's a whole Even Boise or Idaho. Or for that matter, Indianapolis. Mm. Um, so what is interesting and it's too early to look through the results of the midterms, but mm -hmm. already in 2020, and now again in 2022, you can see that it is in those kinds of places that actually the Democrats did better than expected and the Republicans did worse than expected because there um, people could see that things were actually starting to improve. Understood. So the US will be a center of growth and it will be the smaller places with cheaper rent and a history of expertise in a particular technology that'll drive growth. Now you've also talked about your home country. Yeah. Um, and Eindhoven is one example and you've given examples of Saxony in Germany. Yeah. Um, you've given other examples too. 
So outside the in US, Sweden, in yeah. Finland, Lund, yeah. yeah. So so outside uh, well, Israel, for that matter. Israel, of course, is a startup nation, and so, that's just talking about the developed world, which exactly. So so then. in the developed world. Uh, what would be the centers? You haven't talked much about Italy, of course, or for that matter, Spain or Greece or Portugal. So in the in Europe and let's say, and in the developed world, which would obviously include Israel, maybe Taiwan, maybe Japan, where do you see growth coming from? In very short, I believe that the countries, the cities and the companies that will prosper will be those that will embrace what I would call the age of electricity. Hmm. We are leaving the age of fossil fuels mm -hmm. and we're entering the age of electricity. Hmm. And so... Hang on a minute. Electricity has been around for a while. Yeah. So, it has been around for a while. So what do you mean by that? You, well, you mean example, how electricity if, is generated? Perhaps it, you mean it'll be generated and, not and just from coal and, and used, used, okay? And used. So please walk us through this. In order to basically bring down the increase in temperature on Earth mm -hmm. and keep it within one and a half percent is already not possible, but let's yeah. say two percent, mm. two degrees centigrade. Uh, 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 two degrees, <laughs> so not two percent. I'm a financial person. I think percentages. Uh, two two degrees. There are things that have to be done. And among those things that have to be done is that the sources of energy have to basically move from fossil fuels to electricity. Now, we of course have been using electricity for a long time, but we haven't been using it for cars mm -hmm. or for planes or for trucks. And mm -hmm. I think cars will be the first one. And that's going very fast now. It finally is going very fast now. And the trend here is clear. Mm -hmm. Now, using electricity for cars means that you have to get it in a different way than exactly. we're getting it now. Because if you get it from coal, you make things worse rather than better. Exactly. Because you're better off using public transport exactly. instead of cars. Yeah. And of course... That's only possible, again, because of technological change. Mm -hmm. And people forget that wind, solar in particular, are now really competitive after mm -hmm. the price has dropped some 80%. So you don't need subsidies anymore for this. They're um, competitive. They're competitive, more than competitive. In mm -hmm. fact. That's one. The second is that we have to start thinking about nuclear in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Nuclear in two different forms. Basically, the current form of nuclear, which is fission, fission. Um, making smaller reactors and more efficient reactors where the waste is recycled in a more efficient manner. Everyone from Bill Gates to other people are working on that, and you will see that come about, mm -hmm. I think. But the other area is nuclear fusion, mm -hmm. which, which is has been a lot in, in the news. Yeah, it's, in, it's only in, at the very beginning. Mm. And what is interesting that actually China is here ahead of the rest of the world. Followed is by it? Korea. Or is, is that hype? No. What they have shown is that they can 
make this reaction last longer than anyone else has been able to this far. In other words, they have been able to create what you could call a secondary sun for longer than anyone else mm. so far. Now, Korea is hot on its heels. Princeton is hot on its heels. Absolutely. That race will change. But mm. there are a number of people working on it. How fast that will, will become a reality, I don't know. Will it be a major source within the next five years? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Could it be a major source, a significant source in 10 years? That's open to question. Mm. Will it be a major source longer term? I would bet yes. Mm. So that's a second major source of, of uh, energy that is not polluting and mm -hmm. that doesn't create global warming. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you've talked about uh, the supply side, but in the supply side itself, we'll get to the demand side too. In the supply yeah. side itself, you need better storage if you're using um, solar Again. or wind. Yeah. It's more sporadic. Uh, you need better transmission. If yeah. you can cut out Absolutely. losses Absolutely. Uh, in transmission, then you make Which are things. Huge. We are huge. Um, simple things. So we've walked into a building here in the US, and one of the things that I'm amazed even today when I fly from Europe to the US is the amount of inefficiency in every building when it it's comes to heating and cooling. So, you know, but the that US thinks itself wrongly mm -hmm. as being ahead in every technology. Mm. And that's very far from the truth. And when mm -hmm. it comes to energy and a future use of energy, and particularly in saving energy in buildings and other places, uh, Germany, Holland, Northern Europe in general, most of Europe is significantly ahead of the United States. So supply side, you see further changes. And then on the demand side as well, yeah. um, if human beings could become more efficient. Right. And, and a third major change, mm -hmm. which I think is important also for other reasons that I'll go into, um, we have to go away as much as we can from transmission altogether. Understood. We so have to generate the electricity in our own homes, mm -hmm. in our own cars, in our own gardens. And that's not just some kind of pipe dream anymore. Mm -hmm. It is quite possible. Now I mean, people have, have solar roofs and in India you can generate quite a lot of electricities and you can generate quite a lot in Africa too. So, so I was just on a boat. Yeah, boats uh, have it too. I have a friend whose boat has solar panels. On a Dutch type freighter on a canal mm -hmm. in France. And we had several solar panels mm -hmm. that provided not all, but significant amount of, of electricity. Mm -hmm. Why we are not doing that mm. is crazy. Is it capital investment? No, it's 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 mindset. I see. Now, we've talked about the supplies. And let's say, as we're moving into it, there's a period mm. that people have to, it's not just a mindset, but people have to be trained on installing it, which a few years ago on the eastern shore of Maryland, you couldn't do, by the way. And Why not? Pe people didn't know how to do it, or they didn't want to do it. I see. I see. So you've talked about the supply side, and we've touched briefly on the demand side. On the demand side, where do you see the great savings coming? Because that is essential too. Quite often, um, you have people just talking about the supply side and saying, oh, we'll have fusion. And then once we have energy, we can have clean water. We can have uh, some version of Voltaire's El Dorado, 
But uh, the point I always make is that uh, excessive consumption and inefficient consumption and uh, excessive demand is also not a terribly good thing. That, yeah. that can help but too. Who are some of the big energy users? The Buildings? US? Well, let's yeah. not talk about countries. Let's talk about categories. All right. Buildings. Buildings? Sure. We already talked about that. Yes. They can be made far more efficient. Cars. They can be made... Cars are very inefficient. Far more. Yeah. I mean, an electric engine is so much more efficient, uses less energy. Yeah. Less moving parts. Less moving parts. Yeah. Plenty of other areas. Mm -hmm. uh, industry. I remember talking with cement manufacturers about mm -hmm. energy use and the need to save energy. And one of them had said to his people, one of the major cement companies, okay, within the next two years, I want you to save 30%. He himself didn't believe that this was actually possible. In fact, well within two years, they saved 30%. In other words, it's quite possible to save energy if you put your mind to it. The most important reason why we are not doing these things is the mindset. It's not capital. Very interesting take. And then let's get on the mindset. If it is the mindset. Not the only one, but the yeah, major one. If it is the mindset, then do you see, for instance, the per capita and the net uh, largest polluter in the world, the US, changing? And if so, who will be the drivers? Will it be private businesses? Will it be citizens? Will it be mayors? Will it be governors? Will it be the federal government? Because this is a dispersed society. I don't want to be wishy-washy, mm -hmm. but the answer is all of them. Okay. Um, and the more it is from the bottom up, rather than the top, top down, down, the better. The more sustainable. And there is a good chance that if we look back 10 mm -hmm. years from now, that we'll see that two-thirds of the initiative came from the bottom up and one-third from the top down. Mm -hmm. However, that pressure from the top down is what stimulated <laughs> the bottom up. Or maybe it's a pressure, feedback loop. Maybe it's, it's a, a feedback, feedback loop. But without, without mm. let's say, the academic world mm. recognizing what needed to be done and certain politicians, not all politicians, mm -hmm pushing for this, it wouldn't have happened. Once that started, then states, cities, private enterprises, entrepreneurs, academics, all got into the picture to make this possible. So on that score, I'm actually more optimistic than I was maybe three, four or five years ago. Uh, not that we can fix the problem sufficiently, but that we can mitigate the problem in really material ways. All right, brilliant. Now, we've talked uh, a wee bit about the US driving productivity, and we've talked about the areas in terms of the geographical yeah. areas. And if I may interrupt, I've spent a lot of time thinking about productivity, and it has become quite clear to me that we actually don't know very well how to measure productivity. My belief is, mm -hmm. and that's a whole long discussion, that our productivity is actually significantly higher than we think. Mm. 
and that the productivity in countries like China may actually be a little smaller than they think. So that mm. actually the, the difference in growth between these two may not be quite as big as we think. Mm -hmm. That's a geopolitical aspect of it. But why do I say that? Mm -hmm. The truth is, and even the Bureau of Labor Statistics will admit that, is that we're not very good at measuring basically technological change. We try, mm -hmm. but we don't quite know how. I mean, we all use Google. What a tremendous <laughs> change that is in productivity mm -hmm. that is not being measured. Google Map. There's all debate uh, on this the, about whether, whether uh, we account for the extraordinary uh, efficiency gains right. of using Google Maps from getting A to B. Well, we, we don't know how to measure it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, now we know how, but some years ago we didn't know how to basically measure the productivity improvement in an iPhone from iPhone 1 to iPhone 13. Mm -hmm. Of course, there were incredible productivity <laughs> improvements. Mm -hmm. We just didn't know how to manage it until someone said, well, let's look at eBay. Hmm. And an, an old iPhone is worth less than a new iPhone. So <laughs> you can see there how that productivity moves. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, geographical areas within the US we've covered, but which sectors of the economy have written extensively about it? You've talked about additive manufacturing. You've talked about um, new materials. You've talked about... Um, actually, I'll let you talk about it. You've written a book about it. Yeah. Well... There are a number of areas. Mm. Clearly, robotics mm. will make a significant change because what makes robotics possible? What it makes possible is to make most things in most places mm. at a cost that is not very different from other places. Basically, the idea that you can bring back your father's manufacturing, which was face it, the Trump idea, that I don't believe in. Mm. But what is possible is to produce through robotics, through the use of new materials, etc., in the United States, in Europe, in most other places, in highly efficient ways. Mm -hmm. And that makes it possible to have economies that are more self-reliant mm. and are more resilient than they used to be. We went all out for low cost and efficiency, and we forgot about the need to be self-reliant and resilient. Yeah. And COVID and proved that. And that has now changed. COVID proved that. certainly no, made us realize. Long. Yeah. But also the fact that our world has gone from one that was moving toward globalization to a world that is now deglobalizing. Mm. French-shoring, near-shoring, all these terms have come into being. Yeah, as a result of that, people have to start, mm. have started to think differently yeah. about this. So you mentioned robotics, that's yeah. one. You've mentioned new materials, of course. You've mentioned the combination of chips, software, and medicine. hardware. The whole area of, of healthcare, mm. medicine, um, from 
oncology to replacements of antibiotics to the replacement of of uh, really brutal uh, treatment like uh, chemotherapy through immunotherapy and all kinds of other new treatments mm -hmm. all of that is and the fact that you now can do operations uh, you know robotically mm -hmm. and the fact that a lot of it can be done at a distance you don't need to see the doctor doesn't need to always see you in person a lot of it can be done at a distance all of that is bringing about a revolution in medicine and, and healthcare. That is the type of revolution that is still led by the countries where thought control is at a minimum. And we're talking here mostly about the United States and, and Europe. I'm not saying exclusively because China has done better on technology than I had ever imagined, but they are in the lead because in order to do that, you need freedom of thinking. All right.